Welcome to Tales from the Dance Floor, a podcast exploring the lives and times of people from all walks of life who followed their passions and made careers out of DJing, producing, parties, dance culture and the music industry. I'm Phil Morse from Digital DJ Tips. Let's get started. I'd like to welcome two tales from the dance floor today, or someone who I've been trying to get on this podcast for a long time. He's someone who is one of the pioneers of controllerism, someone who has had a hand in some of the iconic DJ hardware devices over the years, such as the Novation Dicers, the Tractor S4, the MIDI Fighter, and the founder of DJ Tech Tools. It is, of course, Mr. Ian Golden. Ian, thank you for coming on and welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Ian, it's uh, it's one of these podcasts that I think a lot of people are going to be fascinated with because you've been a very visible uh, and uh, innovative person in this game right since the very beginning. And actually, I want to go back right to the very beginning, way before Tech Tools and way before controllerism was a glint, even in your eye maybe, to that first moment when you thought, Music's going to be a big part of my life. The first dance floor moment, the first time that music did that thing that music does to all of us. Where was it? How old were you? Kind of what happened? Yeah. So where, where when, where was I when music? Yeah, did that thing, began? took over, made you think this is, this is where I'm going with my life. DJing specifically? Yeah, I think DJ music. For for me, for instance, it was kind of guitar music and then suddenly DJing took over, but I was already I was already dedicated to the whole thing by then. But how did it work out for you? Hmm. Well, I started playing guitar and writing my own songs and built my a studio with a friend at around the age of I think we were eleven. And we built a studio to record our songs, because of course nobody else would. And um then uh, we actually built a real studio, got soundproofing and recording our songs. And somebody heard about it and offered me a job in a real studio at the age of around 15. Um, and I just loved recording music. I've always loved recording music and making music. I love my guitars. And then I got exposed to um, dance music through raves and the clubs. And I just loved house music absolutely loved it so i started buying records um, because that's the only way you could get the music this is around 1995 and um then i i wanted to share what i was listening to because i really loved it so much i just wanted to share it and so i started i got a, a cheap turntable from from you know the salvation army and then another cheap turntable and started making little mixtapes and and I distinctly remember the first time I got my my first real DJ mixer and there was a very clear thought and feeling of this is what I want to spend the rest of my life doing and I was about I think I was about 17 at that point um, and so I did I pawned all my guitars and got two techniques and a mixer and just I would spend hours, five, six hours a day perfecting beat matching and, and mixing and got my first gig at a local club where I was, of course, you know, extremely underage. 
um, and got uh, got a little gig on a on a radio show. We had a you know every city sort of has like a late night dance radio show, and and uh, there was one in my city, and I submitted some tapes, and they put them on the show, and things were just going well. It seemed like wow, this is something that I'm I'm good at, and I want to do for the rest of my life, and. This was all happening in Salt Lake City, Utah, which was a small, a small but vibrant scene in the 90s. Um, and so at the age of 19, I picked up everything and moved to San Francisco. And what I took to San Francisco was sort of, I was a representative of my, my journey and, and where things were going to go. Uh, I, I only took with me, I had a small little two-seater car, a Toyota MR2, if anyone wants to look that up. And I filled the trunk with records. Um, I filled the front uh, little uh, trunk with records. And I strapped a DJ coffin with my turntables and my mixer on the roof and tied it through the windows so I couldn't close them. And then my passenger seat I filled with records and my clothes and uh, my cat. And we left for San Francisco. Ian, it sounds like, you know, are you going to San Francisco, the, the hippie anthems from the from the 60s? It sounds like your version of that. I'd love to see photos. Do you have any pictures of that car journey? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> what a shame. Anyway, what a great image. So you're heading off to San Francisco with your records and your, and your clothes and your cat. And what happened next? Did you Did you set up and immediately find gigs there or did you get a job? What was the next step? Well, I was really lucky. I had no idea what I was quite literally driving into, which was the peak of the dot-com boom and the peak of the San Francisco deep house era, which was, I was already deeply enthralled with house music, was playing house music, and I had no idea. I didn't realize that I was walking into this huge um, upswell of, of music and, um, and opportunity. And I met um, a few people that were really influential that wanted to help me that I guess saw that I had I had some potential or some talent and and they started getting me gigs and and I started gigging a lot right away in San Francisco playing a lot of deep house and and sort of um, doing quite well uh, at a very young age um, and to a certain extent it went to my head a little bit <laughs> and like all DJs who get their first big break, you know, I had my face on flyers and I was playing, I was headlining the biggest clubs and um, I you know, got a little cocky and a little um, a little egotistical. But that all came, fortunately, it got a really a big, re- big reality check happened in 2001 when the, um, uh, when, uh, the financial uh, crash of uh, uh, the dot-com bubble crashed. Um, and basically overnight the whole city of San Francisco and all the wealth that had been fueling these late night MDMA Thursday house music parties was gone. And I had no gigs and nobody, it's so true. I had one gig. I had one really crappy gig <laughs> and uh, it was a real reality check that things change and things change really quickly. Um, but this situation was a real blessing because it brought me to where I am today in a very unexpected way. So at this point then, and it's interesting you should say the gigs dried up when the recession hit, because just as an aside, 
where I'm from in Manchester in England, it was kind of the opposite. It was kind of people, they needed the release more than ever when the hard times hit. I remember it well. I remember the recession previous to that one as well. And it's interesting. I guess I guess the heights of, of wealth there were kind of probably much higher than the heights of the good times uh, where I was. So maybe maybe the gap between uh, the, the boom and the bust was was a lot bigger. But anyway, you say it kind of set you up for where you where you uh, ended up, and it was kind of a blessing in disguise. So what happened? Is this when you became a writer, which was of course what you did before Tech Tools? Is that what happened next? No, no. Um, so you're right. Like what what the gigs that I was playing um, went away. I was playing house music for house heads and people that were had disposable income. Um, uh, okay, you had the gigs, high end. You had the high end gigs, right? I had the high end gigs. Yeah, yeah. And these went away. Um, okay. What didn't go away uh, were your your pubs, your bars, your your local places where people were listening to top forty music and um, all kinds of just regular music, not sort of like elite. You know, I was a total elite electronic dance music purist. Uh, you know, vinyl only, house music only. Um, and fortunately for me, um, I had a dear friend who in 2002 had started experimenting with the very first version of Final Scratch. And he said to me, Ian, I can get you some gigs in these bars where they're, you know, they're, they're going to expect you to play a mixed format of music. And until Final Scratch, that would have been impossible because I, I would have needed to purchase all those records. And he had been a, a, a hip hop DJ for many, many years. And so he had all the music that he had recorded into MP3 format. And he said, listen, I'm going to give you the essentials of what you want. Um, get this final scratch system and you can start playing some of these bar gigs. Um, and, you know, I know you don't love it, but it'll pay the bills. And, you know, as things change up, you can get back to your house music that you love. And I said I was a hard no. <laughs> For, for quite quite a little while, maybe a few months, until I, I started digging into it a little bit. And I found that, that there was Final Scratch, but there's also this little program called Tractor, very first version of Tractor. And what intrigued me about Tractor was that it had really only two things, um, looping, and it also had key correction. You could, you could change the speed of a song without changing the pitch. And this was really intriguing to me because my friend had all these records and he had all these acapellas, these hip hop acapellas. And I thought, you know, I can play the music that I love, breakbeats, house, and mix some of this stuff on top of it so that they get what they want, I get what I want, um, and it'll be creative, it'll be fun um, because I could do these live remixes on the fly. And so I said yes. And I, I took some of these gigs and I purchased the first version of Tractor, and I got all this hip-hop. Um, and the first problem that emerged was that, you know, you can't control or you couldn't control Tractor with turntables. So I had to figure out a way to DJ. And I settled on a little two-octave keyboard, an Oxygen 8 keyboard, and there is a photo of that that I can, I can give you. Um, and I put um, textured tape and, and labels on the keyboard um, and mapped it to Tractor so that I had all of the functions that I needed on a keyboard. And I would put my laptop on one turntable and the keyboard on the other turntable and show up to these gigs uh, looking like a total goofball. 
Um, and it was really complete heresy at that point to DJ with only a controller and a computer. You just, it was like, what, what, who is this? What, what are these toys? Um, I never forget one night I showed up to a gig. It was probably around 2002, 2003 uh, in Oakland, California, um, which at that time in, in West Oakland, where I was, was a, a predominantly black neighborhood. And I, I played for a party that um, a friend of mine was throwing or a club that he threw that was only old school, really underground hip hop. And I was quite literally the only white person in there. And I showed up with my my um, uh, keyboard and my computer, like a, a real nerd. And I got a lot of real questioning looks like, what the heck does this kid know about hip hop? And by the end of the night, they were completely sold because what I was doing with hip hop was something that they had never heard before. Looping and extending these intros, changing tempos, mashing things up, and, and really um, blending music together in a way that you just simply couldn't do with turntables. So I was completely sold that this, this was a very, very powerful medium. I liked the way I was doing it with the keyboard. And really quickly, my um, uh, luck started to shift. And now with my friend and one other friend, we, there was a posse of three of us. And we were the only people in San Francisco that had digital DJ systems. And we were starting the whole mashup craze. This is in now the mid-2000s, early to mid-2000s. And that's what people wanted to hear. We were the only people who could do it because we were the only people who had the technology. Um, and we were getting, once again, I'm at sort of the top of the, the, the game there, playing all the big clubs. I'm doing very well financially. And everything is, is going really quite well. Um, and I'm back DJing the big clubs that I was playing in the house era. But now I'm playing with my keyboard and I'm playing with my, um, um, my laptop. Um, and at one gig, in fact, I had connected all of my MIDI to a, a visual system um, so that everyone could see what I was doing. And the club projected these visuals behind me on a huge screen. So when I hit played a song, something happened. When I did filters and effects, something else happened. Um, and connected all that together. Um, Richie Houghton was working on a similar thing at the same time. And I was really lucky because somebody in the audience that day saw that and said, hey, we're inventing this new thing at Apple Computers that we want you to test. And it was the, the uh, three-dimensional visual system that would become OS X. You know, when Apple switched from like a very flat to very dimensional, um, rich environment, operating system environment, it was um, something called Quartz Composer and other elements that gave it the, the flexibility and the look. And they wanted me to test this. Um, and me and my friend, who would become a dear friend, Pierre, did a little demo where we connected all of my DJing and tractor to now 3D-generated objects. So filters would spin blocks and, and all this stuff. And it was a really cool demo that showed the power of, of all these things. Um, it was so powerful that 
his boss, the head of software at Apple, said, hey, will you guys get up and do a demo of this at the WWDC conference right after Steve Jobs? And this was before um, Steve Jobs was really as iconic and these WWD conferences were as big as they are now. Um, so I didn't really think it was that big of a deal. Um, although I was pretty nervous when I stood up on stage in front of, I think it was like 15, 20,000 people and did a little goofy, you know, DJ performance. Um, and in this, in that crowd was a publisher from a popular how to book series. And they seemed to like what they saw and asked me to write a book about this new thing that was now starting to happen called digital DJing. Um, yeah. And then there's more to that story, but I, I feel like I'm going to take a talking break right now. <laughs> well, we've got a lot to get through. So, um, so let's jump on then. So did you actually write that book? I wrote half of it. And okay. then uh, the publisher, very luckily canceled it. And, and, you know, the overall theme of my whole story, and I think if there's one takeaway that people can get, it's that adversity is not always what it seems. It's almost always breeds opportunity. Um, and when that book got canceled, I'd written half of it. I was really sad. I thought, oh man, this is a big break. It's gone. But I approached um, the editor of Remix Magazine and said, hey, I wrote this book. Is there any way you guys would consider publishing parts of it? And she said, no, but how would you like a column? How would you like to write about this topic? And this is actually when I first started seeing your name around, Ian, because I was a writer at the time, keeping an eye on other stuff going on. And you were writing this column for Remix magazine. Yeah. And, and, and this led to DJ Tech Tools, didn't it? Because we all know that print kind of, print's all been in slow decline for decades and the internet's taking off and you're, you're a technology-driven guy. So the, the internet's holding no barriers as far as you're concerned and and tech tools was launched right yeah uh i noticed you know we had a circulation of maybe 30 to fifty thousand people but i knew that this was a global thing and that i wasn't reaching all the people that i wanted to reach you know my whole mission with with my column and with dj tech tools was to help share information and save people a whole world of trouble I'd spent six, seven years figuring out a lot of hard problems, and I just wanted to save other people some trouble of getting through that muck. And I just wanted more people to be uh, get the information. And so I went to my editor and said, hey, this should be a column, um, or it shouldn't be a column. We should take my column. We should make it a, uh, a blog. And my editor said two things. One... Uh, well, the legal department's concerned about the comments. This is a very corporate um, publishing company, by the way. Mm -hmm. The legal department's really concerned about comments, and we don't know how to make a blog work with our existing content system. So why don't you go ahead and do it? And I did. I just started my own blog and began with publishing um, some of the things that I was writing for the column and augmenting it with a few different things. Um, and long story short, Less than a few years later, I had five or six times their circulation. Remix Magazine was out of business, and um, I was very lucky to have my old editor now writing for us. Um, and that change happened really quickly um, and really suddenly. So, yeah, that's where it came from. So that's where we get to kind of 
what people know you for now, but there's a lot more that we're going to we're going to move on to. And DJ Tech Tools, of course, grew very quickly. It became a uh, not only a respected place to to learn about everything controllerism, but a respected store selling a curated selection of stuff, selling its own gear with the MIDI fighter and so on. And then at this time, you're also getting involved with the bigger some of the bigger uh, hardware manufacturers, and uh, it's kind of folklore now that you design the Novation dices on the back of a, of a of a napkin or a beer mat or something similar. Uh, you're also involved in the design of the S4. I mean, how did some of those things come about? And what was it like being involved in the design of the kind of first hardware to go mainstream, if you like, to be a little bit less Wild West and a bit more for the consumer? What was that time like? That was an exciting time. You know, looking back, I didn't realize particularly with the S2 and S4, that the work that we were doing would largely define templates for a decade to come. Um, mm. There had been one major controller out in the market for DJs, the VCI 100. And I had made a lot of modifications to that and shown how it could be vastly improved. Um, because the bottom line was the reason I got into hardware is because people weren't building the stuff that I wanted to play on. Um, I remember my first year I went to NAM. I thought NAM, NAM is a, a conference where all the manufacturers and the stores get together and they talk about the new cool stuff that they're going to create. And I thought this was going to be a paradise of creativity. And instead, what I found was a, a, a black hole of, of uh, consumer capitalism where uh, store sales largely drove um, creative decisions. And everyone was kind of making very mediocre products. Um, a period of time, ironically, that I feel like we're back in now. Uh, and so I started building the stuff and, and making the stuff through hacking or collaboration or just outright building it ourselves that I knew nobody was going to make. Um, and it turns out other people wanted that too. Um, things like the MIDI fighter, things like the VCI 100 with arcade buttons in it, things like the VCI 100 Special Edition, which introduced the idea of bipole filters that had never created, but never been there before on, on DJing. Um, that was an innovation that I came up with on that controller. And um, people liked it. And Native Instruments definitely noticed and said, hey, will you come uh, design our first DJ controller? Um, and so I went over and I spent um, about six months in Berlin um, mocking up uh, and working out the design, the spacing, the orientation for uh, a two-channel DJ controller, which um, I'll, I'll share a photo of as well, uh, the original prototype. And what I didn't, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about well, where should everything be? What do I really need? Um, how big should the jog wheels be? Where should the jog wheels be? And I know one really controversial thing that I pushed and pushed and pushed is I said, the jog wheels need to be up away from the bottom. Like using your jog wheels is no longer a priority. Cue points and sync and play, these are the priority. These should be down at the bottom and let's move the jog wheels away. Um, and I pushed and pushed for that. And, and that stuck um, along with some other things like, you know, uh, the encoders with looping is something that, that I came up with and turned out that was the right thing to do. Two encoders left, right, with some information in the center. And uh, 
I don't, I didn't appreciate at the time that this was going to become a big deal and that a lot of companies would just end up copying this and that it would become sort of a, a, a standard in many ways. Some aspects of those mm. controllers, I think, have been standardized now. Um, in the same way that Pioneer has, has defined their own sets of standards, um, some of which I think are great, some of which I think are less great. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It was really cool to, to give people great tools. Um, like the Dicer, uh, I knew all my DJ friends that played on turntables still could really benefit from having a MIDI controller. They just never experienced it, and they weren't going to put a box next to their turntables. And so I came up with a way to put the controller on the turntable, and they used it. A lot of regular working-class DJs playing night in, night out, relied on those things and still rely on those things um, for you know, hundreds and thousands of gigs. Um, and that made me really happy to give people tools that enhanced their creativity and gave them uh, the opportunity to have more fun DJing. So I suppose one of the, the one of the peaks around that time would have been that you toured a couple of times with uh, Richie Horton and Loco Dice, just just heading around big venues, taking this gear with you, and um, you know pu- pushing pushing the boundaries and letting people see what was possible with this stuff. And that must have felt very good to to have gone from those first days with your keyboard in hostile San Francisco to kind of being being invited to tour all over the place, showing people what what this stuff could do. Yeah, it felt great. I was, but you dis- but you disappeared, Ian. You just disappeared. Did I? At one point, at one point, you 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 kind of stepped back, and a few years back, you were kind of not quite as visible as you'd been before, and weren't writing as much on tech tools. Certainly, weren't making videos anymore. And and you, it was obvious that you were having a a crossroads or a change or a rethink or a you know taking a break. What went on at that point? What went on when, when Ian wasn't quite so prolifically visible, shall we say, as, as, as he had been for the, the few years previous? Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot happened, but the first thing that comes to mind is, um, is having a little bit of a, of a breakdown, frankly. Um, it was, I think it was in between those tours or after those tours that I got the opportunity of a lifetime and something that I had always wanted to do. When I, I, I DJed Ibiza for my very first time, I think in 2000, 2000, the year 2000. And I'd always wanted to come back and play some real gigs in Ibiza. And the opportunity came to play with Richie Houghton at his enter party. Um, I had designed and, and put an installation, a music audio installation at the, the club that was happening every week. And I was also playing at um, in in a, a bar or in in one of the rooms at his enter party, and this for a lot of electronic dance DJs is sort of you know like the peak of of uh, of their desires. I would think you know to play the biggest party in Ibiza. For um, sure, yeah, yeah. And so I'm there, living in Ibiza, playing you know theoretically living the dream, and incredibly unhappy completely burned out. Um, I had pushed myself and my staff just too hard for too long, um, trying to do more and more and more. Um, and I also realized that if this is the peak of DJing, 
um, you know, super late nights uh, and a heavy drug culture. Like, I just, I don't want to be a part of it anymore. This doesn't, this is not working for me. Um, you know, I've been sober since 1999. Um, and I've uh, have been able to stay up and um, and DJ, thanks to Red Bull <laughs> and other things. But more and more as I was getting older, I was re- realizing, you know, I just, like, this is not what I want to do anymore. Um, if this is what DJing is, I'm not interested. Um, and I was really burned out with the business. You know, I didn't set out to create a company with lots of employees and a huge office and responsibilities. I'm a creator at heart. I'm an artist. Um, and, and I had become an entrepreneur um, and kind of gotten away from, from my passion and my soul, frankly, um, in the pursuit of growth and um, building more stuff and having more success. And so I took a real step back and asked the question, well, how can I make this work for me? What, what do I need to change here? What do we need to shift? Um, and that involved some radical changes to the business, to my personal life, to how I was DJing, where I was DJing. Um, and I didn't DJ for a good year and a half. I was playing here and there, but I, I really went back to my roots. I didn't do it consciously, but I, I realized while I was not DJing as much, I started dancing again. And I specifically started dancing at events called Ecstatic Dance and Five Rhythms and sort of conscious uh, embodied dance events where everyone's sober, there's a bunch of wild music, and you have full full permission to just be a complete lunatic or however you want to be. And I realized, I remembered, holy crap, I fell in love with music as a dancer. I love this music. And then I became a DJ and I stopped dancing. And I stopped dancing for probably 15 years. 17 years. And so when I started dancing again and getting back and rediscovering my love of music, um, that set up uh, the opportunity for a transition in, again, a new direction. You know, I mean, my whole career has been this cycle of, of, of uh, ups and downs and um, creating myself and then recreating myself. And, and this was yet another story of that. A lot of people aren't going to know very much about what you just described, about the ecstatic dance community, about what this is all about. Can you just explain a little bit more for people who might be thinking, I haven't got a clue. What's Ian talking about? Sure. Yeah. Um, The core idea is that you have a space where people can go dance, um, where there's amazing music, and where everyone has full permission to be themselves. Um, and where everyone's, the goal is, is not to escape your reality, but rather to get more close and more present to your reality. Um, in a lot of clubs, it, it can be a bit escapist. You get really drunk or you get really high and you sort of lose yourself in the music. And with ecstatic dance, you say, okay, listen, here's a room where we're not going to talk. We're not going to get messed up but we're going to play amazing music and just see what happens. Um, and that's been going in different forms for many, many years, 20, 30 years. Um, in its current um, formation, 
uh, ecstatic dance and five rhythms and, and lots of things like it, open floor. There's all sorts of different versions of this percolating up and, and uh, manifesting around the world. Um, there's a really popular party along the same lines in the UK that you probably heard of called Morning Glory, where everyone mm. gets up and they dance at 7 a.m. before work. And I, I, th- I don't know what they are now, but those parties used to gather 500,000 people. Um, and the idea being like, hey, we all love dance music. We all love to dance, but we don't want to get super messed up, stay up until 2 a.m. and suffer the consequences of that for three days. What if we got up before work, had this amazing, explosive, uh, endorphin-filled, joy-filled experience, and then had a full, healthy, productive day? Here in uh, the United States, there's something called Daybreaker, which follows a similar format. In fact, there was one today for for Halloween uh, where everyone got on a boat at uh, 7 a.m. It went around uh, the harbor of New York City and came back at 9 a.m. and get a full two-hour dance party um, that's focused on, on wellness, exp- personal expression, um, and the freedom to be yourself. So there's a kind of interesting trait um, I'm seeing here, which is, you know, you kind of bemoaned the NAM show because it had gone corporate and there wasn't much creativity going on there. And uh, this seems to be another example of, you know, kind of gravitating towards something a bit more underground and something a bit more a bit less commercialized and maybe a bit less mainstream. Is that one of the things that attracts you to this scene? That it is something that is, is kind of, it's saying, no, we don't want the mainstream. We want something different. Um, I don't know that, that maybe a little bit. Um, I think more than anything, it just feels authentic. Mm. It's in alignment with who I am and it feels authentic to who I am. Well, it's obviously worked for you because you, you're back. You're back on your channel. You're back talking about DJ gear again, almost in a way, I guess it must be full circle. What, what caused the decision for you to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back into the limelight now. I'm kind of ready to, to do a bit more of the, of the reviewing of gear and, and putting my face back on my business. What caused that, that decision? Um, well, you know, over the two, last two years that... For two years, I've been traveling the world uh, looking for, for a place where I would want to live and settle down and, and sort of just finding myself, like I said in my, in my opening video. And um, in that time, I would, I would still teach uh, workshops, DJ workshops. Um, and um, in those personal DJ workshops where I was talking with people and really understanding what they cared about and what they were struggling with. It was just such a clear reminder that there's a lot of things that I have just never shared that I didn't get around to teaching or I didn't, I didn't put um, out there and, and that there was still a real need to, to share some critical things that have made a huge difference in my life. And frankly, um, that new innovations, new way of, ways of thinking about DJing that I've been working on throughout this process um, that I wanted to share with people. That's where all this has come from is I get inspired by something. I want to share it with others and I want to share that excitement and that inspiration. 
What's changed, Ian? What would you say has changed? I mean, it's a long time since you started doing this and DJing, as you just alluded to, has changed an awful lot. The technology's changed, but also people's way of consuming music has changed with Spotify and streaming and playlists, which gives people a different, I guess, a different approach to music that people seem to be far more open-minded to different types of music but at the same time have far less attention span than they ever had and of course this all trickles down to DJing right this all trickles down to the job of the DJ what's changed in DJing in in even in the couple of years since you took a step back but maybe over the time you've been doing this what big trends have you seen as far as the music and the mixing and and the way DJs do their job uh is concerned I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on in the world. I just know what's going on for me. Um, my whole thing has always been staying authentic and true to who I am and what I'm interested in. I share what I'm passionate about, and that attracts other people who are also passionate about it and interested in it. Um, I can tell you what's changed for me, um, but I can't really tell you what's changed for the whole world. Um, what's changed for me is is looking at the music experience of DJing and, and of, of being in a space where we're experiencing music together, how transformational and powerful that can be. And um, in some ways, even healing. Um, and so what's changed for me is looking at that um, as a mode of personal expression, of collective transformation, of, of a really powerful tool where Instead of just, you know, oh, what's the most popular song that I need to play right now to, to um, rock the dance floor? Asking, okay, what, what needs to be played right now? What is the collective mood? And, and, and how can we transmute that and transform it? And um, how can I move people through a, a state of being that allows them to feel fully expressed? Um, that's why people get on dance floors because they want to they want to express themselves and get in their body and forget about the 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 pain and the existential crisis that is um, being human. Frankly, in a way, you just describe why people got into this in the first place. I think all those years ago, before the companies and the commercialization and the and yes. the. Yeah. politics and the egos and everything came into it so it does feel like full circle Absolutely. which is lovely to hear Ian it's lovely to hear but of course my next question following on from that is what next you're settled in New York now and you you use the words settle down somewhere are, are the kind of traveling days over are you looking to do something um, totally different is there have you got ideas and aspirations outside of music you know what in the next five to ten years can you see yourself being occupied with well, that's been the question and a question that I continue to ask. Um, probably when I do pick a place to really put down roots, I'm going to create a space or, or facilitate a space where I can really go deeper into this exploration, this research. Um, ultimately, I'd, I'd like to build my own um, facility. Um, sort of a movement space where these practices can happen um, and, and play there and experiment. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's such a, it, you're right, like back when I think about what got me into this, it was going out into the deserts of Utah, very, very powerful, 
powerful sacred land, taking psychedelics and then losing myself for 10 hours. And in the context of, of that, where I felt safe and I felt in nature, some really transformational things happened. And, and we all, anyone who's done that has felt the power of, of just losing yourself in the music and in the collective process. And now, you know, we're getting to a point where uh, psychedelic um, therapy is, at least in the U.S., um, at some point in the future in, in Europe, is now recognized as being very valuable. Um, and that these kinds of transformational experiences that combine um, a safe environment, powerful music, and, and a really good intention can be incredibly, incredibly beautiful for people. Um, and so I'm curious about sort of bridging that gap um, and giving people spaces where they can just go have a good dance and be free um, and uh, shake off the stress um, and the challenges that they might face, um, but also being able to play beautiful music that, that um, works for me and works for others. So is modern music any good, Ian? Is there an era that is just your era? Is there music that you, you feel was, was the personal pinnacle for you? Or, or are you, can you say, hand on heart, look, there's always great music coming out? Oh, there's always great music going out. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of knew you'd say that. I mean, there's so, so much great music coming out. And, and that's one of the reasons I like playing in the formats I do and, and why I gave up. You know, you're right. Like I, I had a really, I was touring with some of the biggest names in, in tech uh, tech house and, and, and techno and, and, and there was a real potential in that, in that, um, direction for me. And I walked away from that because I didn't want to be constrained to one format of music. Um, I wanted to be able to be inspired. Um, and you know, there's so many interesting things happening in, in drum and bass right now, for example, um, in, in, um, drum step and, and, and sort of different halftime things, um, the whole bass movement scene that was happening for the last five or six years was incredible. Like, I, you you would never in two thousand one, you know, between nineteen ninety six to two thousand two, you know, I was playing a lot of deep house, and I I, I would almost never play those records again because mm. they're just not relevant. Um, mm. I think the stuff that's coming out today is so interesting and so powerful. Well, Ian, thank you very, very much for spending the last three quarters of an hour with us. I know a lot of people will have really enjoyed hearing hearing this adventure and, and knowing that you're you're not making any radical changes. You're going to be doing the stuff that, that they love you for, which is kind of pushing forward with the music that you love and with, with sharing it with others. Um, I thank can't, you very I much can't for your promise time. that. Making radical hey, changes well. is what I've always done and what I always <laughs> will do. That's well, listen, if you if you do... Come back on and tell us all about it. Okay. <laughs> Ian, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.